Everybody, welcome to Mrs. D's Storytime. We are reading Patricia Sanjin Tells Her Own Story by Patricia Sanjin with permission of 10 of those publishing company. And we are on Chapter 4, School Days. Once we got used to it, dull old England turned out to be less dull than expected. In any case, we were quite capable of providing our own drama. Looking back, those Malvern years seem so packed with interest and discovery that it is difficult to write about them. Memories came vividly alive when years later I wrote Tanglewood's Secret, Rainbow Garden, and The Mystery at Pheasant Cottage. The wigwam in the woods, slow, sunny, carefree hours when we wandered timelessly searching for nest, the lambing, the hop fields, the natural history museum, the animal cemetery, swimming in the river, or cycling joyfully off to the other end of nowhere. Memories came tumbling out on top of each other, happy, funny, occasionally sad, and the problem was what to discard. My mother's sister was at that time teaching English in a small private school in Malvern, and on a very meager salary, she arranged for Hazel and me to attend as day girls and later as boarders. We both quickly came to love school, and in those days, the emotional strain of boyfriends did not start till our later teens, but we compensated by hating or adoring our teachers. At ten, I adored my history mistress, the local vicar's daughter, Winifred Chapman. She proved worthy of it. She was the perfect friend and teacher of young children, and she made history a fascinating subject. She was caught in a serious train accident, and she and a young Roman Catholic priest lay trapped in the wreckage all night while others in the carriage died one by one. Boiling oil dripped on their legs, but they prayed together and talked about the Lord. He died early in the morning, but she was rescued. Both of her legs had to be amputated, but her cheerfulness and courage was legendary. She became a pioneer in the planning of camps for disabled girl guides and worked tirelessly for missions until her death in 1987. At 13, I adored my English teacher, Evelyn Pike, and that love endured. Her influence on me as a teenager, her love of all that was strong and beautiful in literature and in nature, and a hatred of all of falsehoods and hypocrisy was incalculable. Hundreds who were schoolgirls during the 40 years she taught at a Clarendon school would say this. Retired and now in her 80s, they write to her from all over the world and visit her by dozens. No old girl's reunion was ever quite the same without her. And when I am in England, I always visit her once or twice a year. School in those early days was definitely fun. There was an intrepid elderly matron called Miss Annie who supervised our health and cured all ills with homeopathic pills. She taught us to be tough. Once a week, she took us to play hockey in the turfed field, where we jumped over the cow pads, and when the river serene flooded, she took the seniors swimming in the meadows and encouraged them to dive off a five-bar gate. Sun on snow was irresistible to her. At the first tempting gleam, she would cancel lessons at once, in cause of health and climb the beacon with us and we would arrive rosy, breathless and cluster around the toposcope, north, south, east and west, from which in the days of the Spanish Armada, twelve fair countries saw the blaze of the Marvel's lonely heights. Then screaming with life and laughter, we would prance and roll home down the sleep slopes, throwing snowballs, pushing each other over, expressing our joy as we pleased with Miss Annie. Four square and unconcerned, puffing in the rear. 
But apart from those unpredictable excitements, there was very few organized activities outside of our lessons, and we did not need them. Long afternoons were spent roaming the woods and fields with our special friends, talking and talking and talking, laying the foundation for those strong, steady friendships that would last through life. There was Miriam with her tight, dark plaits and sparkling brown eyes, my joyful companion in all mischief. Joan with her long golden hair and a wonderful imagination. Irene, a little older than me, who simply and gently helped me to be good. There were others, too, those separated far and wide through life. From time to time, we managed to find each other again. Then the years rolled away, and it was as though we'd never been parted. And at once, we were all twelve years old again. When I was eleven, my aunt became the headmistress and Miss Annie retired, and things became a little less rollicking. My aunt was an astonishing person. She became deaf in her early twenties, and when told that nothing could be done to cure the condition she had, at first panicked. But the consultant, but the consultant did not beat about the bush. You'll never be any better, he told her, so you can either conquer it or let it conquer you. Walking home that day, she decided to conquer, and she acquired a hearing aid in the shape of a quite large black box and proceeded to live a normal life and to rise to the ranks of a headmistress. Then, stone deaf and frail in her health, she could reduce the whole school to a silence with a quick of her eyebrow. We loved and respected her at a distance, and her moral and spiritual influence was strong and abiding. Her standards of education were high, and the teachers she gathered round her were not only very proficient in their subjects, but they were also women of like faith. Four times a week, my aunt taught scripture to her seniors. She taught us the Bible as I have seldom heard it taught since. I was a naughty child with a monkey-like instinct for climbing. I once climbed out of the skylight of the four-story school building and sat triumphantly astride the roof doing my homework. The teachers turned out in force to gaze at me, and I watched them out of the corner of my eye, pretending not to see them, revealing in the fact that none of them dared call out for fear that it would startle me and cause me to fall. Finally, there was a calm command. Patricia, come down. I slid down the tiles and in at the skylight. On another occasion, when a new member of staff was taking our names, I suggested we all give ourselves flower names. May Winter. Pansy Alexander, Lily Camperon were accepted. But when I stood and announced myself as Rhododendron, Sandin, the game was up. There was also the teacher who found it difficult to keep order. He would spend quite a long time standing with her back to us, writing on the board. Our classroom was on the first floor and my desk by the window. I would slip out, shin down the drain pipe, and re-enter the classroom with a noisy, voluminous apology for being late. The poor lady was completely bewildered. Surely she had seen me in class. But then how did I get out? Or was she making a mistake? The class was delighted with these antics, and I must have been an embarrassment to Hazel, who was sensible and responsible. But the sense of family in us all was usually strong, and she stood by me loyally. When on one occasion I was considered too wicked to go to school picnics, she stayed behind with me, and no reproach was uttered. But in spite of these interests and friendships, school was not the most important part of my life, for in the evening I went home, and home was a cheerful, exciting place. 
My mother was the most hospitable person in the world, and although there was so little to share, I don't know what my father's income was, but it must have been very minimal. She entertained traveling preachers, missionaries, and children, and anyone in distress. Also, any of our friends who cared to bring along were always welcome, and this more than made up for the simple meals and the second-hand clothes. One of our most frequent visitors was Maurice Wood, Farnham's friend and later Bishop of Norwich. He was a charming fellow, but he had an enormous appetite. We remember him bounding up to my mother one evening with shining eyes. They've opened a fish and chip shop at the link, he announced eagerly. Can we buy some? Why, yes, replied my mother. You can go and get some for supper. His face fell. I didn't mean for supper, he burst out. I meant after supper. There were other friends who frequently dropped in for a meal or a chat. One of the regulars was Amy of tousled hair and a smutty face and the kindest heart imaginable. Her stories held us spellbound, especially the one about her mother who suffered with, with the Harcott veins and went with the Mother's Union on a cherry bang trip to Weston. Did she enjoy herself, asked my mother. Not so splendid as it might have been, answered Amy, seeing as how they spent five hours in a hedge and being that damp underfoot. How was that, asked my mother. It appears that a neighbor, Mrs. Smith, had a wig that tended to lift in the high winds. Warned to sit at the back of the coach, she refused. I've paid me money and I'll sit here where I like, says she. Twenty miles out of Weston, off goes her hat, and sure enough, the wig lifted and flew to the side of the carry. Everyone screamed right loud, and the driver, seeing what he took to be the head of a human hair flying under his wheel, pulled on the brakes so hard he never got started again. Sat in the ditch for five hours, they did and another cherry bang brought them home. Not much of a trip, it wasn't. But Amy's love of trips was by no means quenched. She longed to go abroad. She saved coin by coin from her tiny earnings and signed on with the Women's Institute for a day trip to Rowan in France. How did it go, asked my mother eagerly next day. She had no doubt greatly aided and abetted with the preparations. Not much of a trip, it wasn't, replied Amy shortly. Went to ruin in the high wind and was sick in a basin all the way. Gilson was a real gentleman of the road. Quiet and courteous, he would often turn up for his lunch, carrying all his worldly possessions in a small sack. He never knew where he came from or where he was going, but he always gave as good as he got. He would collect the family's muddy boots and clean them or weed the garden bed, and if no work presented itself, he would return later, usually after dark, with some strange gift. He once nearly startled my mother out of her wits by creeping up to her in the dusk when she was bringing him some wash from the garden and saying in a hoarse whisper, Would you like a nice sheep's head or a bit of London pride? And then there was Mrs. Biggs, who never claimed her old-age pension, then two pounds a week, because she had no fixed address and could not sign her name. All she needed, she told my mother rather pitifully, was someone to intercede for her and my mother took up the crusade with energy and determination. They would go off together in a bus, Mrs. Briggs looking like a rusty old bundle of rags, and spent hours in a social service center in the lawyer's offices. In the absence of any birth certificate, fixed address, or final decision as to whether her name was Hannah or Anna, the fact that they succeeded seemed miraculous. I think my mother simply wore them down. Mrs. Biggs went off triumphantly to claim her first pension and spent it all on presents for us. 
All I needed, she kept saying, was for someone to intercede for me. These and others like them were numbered among our friends. They were part of a home along with the preachers and the missionaries and Granny's many relatives who came to stay. It was a busy, interesting world we lived in, but for me, there was that third almost secret world, which was perhaps the most important of all, the world of the hills and the woods and the changing seasons. I was a little ashamed of this because in some way it made me different from my peers. Apart from running, athletics, and swimming, I never cared much for sports. When chosen to play in the first hockey 11, I pretended to be wildly excited, but inwardly I was dismayed. Fancy wasting an autumn Saturday afternoon chasing a little ball up and down a muddy field when I could be out in the woods where the hawthorns are turning crimson or up on the windy hills where the brackens was turning gold. For something happened in my early teens that somehow changed the face of nature. I was at at a stage of strong-willed child, prone at times to tempers and sulks, and I hated myself. I loved my home and my family, and no child could have longed more to be helpful and admired. I remember waking morning after morning, resolving that today at least I would be a little ray of sunshine, only to fail miserably the first time my will was crossed. I told no one, but I was gradually sinking into a mystified despair. Why, oh why, could I not be what I longed to be? Then one day, after some angry outburst, I went to my room and picked up my old Bible that I had almost ceased to read, and I opened it at Revelation 3.20 which I must have known by heart for many years. But that day, I seemed to understand the words for the first time. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in. I seemed to see not a closed door, but a little ship, tossed out, of course, by winds and waves, with no hope of ever reaching the harbor. And I seemed to see Jesus standing in the storm and saying, If you will ask me in, I will take you where you want to go. I think I cried out aloud, Oh, please, please come in. Since that first long-ago child's grasp of Isaiah 43.1, I have never doubted that I belong to the Lord. And this in no way negated that experience. To receive is simply a further step to belonging. It just confirmed what was once said by a well-known child evangelist. A little child needs a little child's savior. A growing child needs a growing child's Savior. Over and over in each stage of our growth, he reveals himself in a very way that we need him. I don't think there was any great outward difference. I was still prone at times to the trauma of self-willed, emotional teenager, but inwardly something had changed. I knew he was there, part of me, and I knew that there was hope, and that if I remembered to call out to him, he would control me. But more than that, The world had changed. I had always loved growing things, but now it was his life springing up. And I had always loved light, sunrise, clouds, sunset, but now he was that light. I was sometimes desperately miserable, yearning for some holy grail that I had not yet glimpsed. And sometimes I was wildly, almost painfully happy. If sometimes I was difficult to live with, mine was a patient family. Their general attitude was live and let live. For Malvern was a very beautiful place. In those good old days, we were free to wander as we pleased, and I doubt if either I or my parents had ever heard of the word rapist, so there was no fear in those quiet woods, fields, and hills. 
sometimes with the whole family, sometimes with Farnham or little John, or very often alone, I would go where I longed to be. There was that thrilling moment in late February, usually early in the morning, I still recognize it, when, through the breath of the south wind or the solitary song of a bird, you suddenly knew for certain that spring was on its way. And then the finding of the first primrose, the cry of the first lamb, the waking early to the rapture of the dawn chorus, and spring was there at flood tide. Then the Easter holidays came, and we spent long days in the Calais woods searching for nests, building wigwams, damming streams, or climbing trees, where the bluebells sprouted knee-deep around us and the meadows grew golden with buttercups. Memories of early summer are linked with early mornings and late evenings. I suppose because we were at school most of the day, we would lie in the bracken on the north hill and watch the first larks rise or cycle joyfully down the road where the foxgroves were springing up on the banks and the wild roses jeweled the hedges and the sunset smelled of honeysuckle. In the summer holidays, we would set out early and walk the whole length of the hills to Hollybush Hill and back about 16 miles or swim in a muddy river, or ride the donkeys on the hills. Hungry and happy, we would return with the dusk. Mother was glad to see us and asked no questions. Best of all, she sometimes came with us. She would coax a bonfire into flame, and even in the snow, and no sausage before or since had ever tasted so good as those she would toast over that smoky wood ash. But perhaps I loved the autumn best of all. Air bells on the high chalk turf and the last glory of the trees, more beautiful in their dying than in their living, the freshness of the wind on the slopes of the beacon, laden with the scent of russet bracken, and then the cold loneliness of snow. These things were the most important part of my life, the book from which I learned the deepest lessons, and I dreaded a future that would take me from them. So Hazel grew naturally into young adulthood. I clung almost obsessively to my childhood, Already the question loomed ahead. What did I intend to do when I left school? It was certainly surprised when, after reading the upper VI as a boarder, I found myself a pointed head girl. And here's a poem. Rebuke. I am very sinful, Lord, today. Undisciplined, I walked my self-willed way. Unloving, I have given thee no thought, and all day long thy face I had not sought. Yea, though my hardened heart could not repent, thou didst not strike or threaten punishment. But when the wasted day was nearly over, thou leadest me to the twilight field of clover. I saw the hawthorn, white as souls forgiven, and all the sunset colors of thy heaven. There is no other person there to see, and so I knew that it was all for me. He whom I had neglected all the day, and from those loving voices had turned away had borne with all my failure and defeat, and then had cast his beauty at my feet. And tomorrow we'll be reading Chapter 5, Wartime Experiences. I love you. I'm praying for you, and I hope you're enjoying the, her story. It's getting better and better. I know I've been encouraged by it. We'll see you tomorrow. Bye-bye.